And all the divorced people started to sweat as they understood what I was talking about today. They're ready for the altar call right now. Half kid. No, today we are going to deal with a hot topic, but we're going to deal with it honestly. We're not going to just skip over it. We're going to go through it. It may be a little bit of tough love at certain places, but I promise you, I promise you this. If you have an ear to hear, you will be encouraged by what you hear today, no matter what you've been through. We're going through the book of Matthew, verse by verse. We're not skipping over the hard part. So let's go to Matthew chapter 19 today. Somebody say, I'm ready. All right, it's good to see you guys here. You ready to enjoy your uh, vacation tomorrow and have a good time with your family today? I know the weather's not ideal, but at least you don't have to go to work, right? So you, you can enjoy that. But maybe it'll change for tomorrow because it may change in an hour. We're in Chicago, right? We never know what's going on, the weather here. Okay, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. God grant me the grace to preach this message. I don't get intimidated much, but the limited amount of time and the seriousness of the topic and the amount of text that I have to read, I truly need the grace of God. So if you get bored during this at any time, just start praying for me and interceding, okay? Chapter 19, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole context here and do my best to not interject anything just so you can hear how Jesus is asked a question and then how he answers it. So it's like I don't want to be the interviewer that keeps, keeps interrupting the person while they're answering the question, okay? So hear it in its entirety. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Highlight that if you have a, a Bible or an app. That's very important to understanding the question. For any and every reason. Verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Highlight that phrase. That's very important to understand as well. Because your hearts were hard. Keep going. But it was not this way from the beginning. I will tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> I'm going to get a little nervous when you hear things like that. You might have the same question as the disciples. Let's keep going. Verse 11, Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs 
who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. That would hurt. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Somebody say amen. Okay, so we've gone through the whole passage. We know from reading before that the Pharisees generally do not ask questions to be helpful. They do it to trick Jesus. This is no different. They're simply trying to get Jesus caught up in the problems that they were dealing with at that time. Very similar to how they try to get him caught up in the tax question. You know, do we pay our taxes or not because the Romans were their oppressors? And then he points to the coin. Whose image do you see on that? They say Caesar. And then they say, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God's. And this is very similar. They're, they're trying to trick him by a, a problem that they faced in their culture because their hearts were hard and they were divorcing and remarrying for whatever and any reason they wanted. Remember, we highlighted those two sections. So they were living in a culture that allowed them to divorce for any and every reason and they were doing it all the time because their hearts were what? Does that sound like a culture you know of? That is now where we are in this culture. I do not have time to get into the history of America and what our divorce policies used to be and some states still have on the records and so forth, but I just have to ask you, do you relate to the people asking the question of a culture that divorced for any and every reason because hearts were hard? Do you relate to that? Amen. So you can understand what Jesus is talking about now. What Jesus is going to do, if you go back to the beginning, please, is he points to the creator and the purpose of creation. How many believe there's a creator? How many believe there's a creation? How many believe there's a purpose in the creator making the creation? Now, in this sentence, Jesus does more than most of us can even realize. Number one, he affirms the validity of the Old Testament. So for those who say, I don't pay attention to that stuff, there's a lot of weird stuff back there. There's a lot of judgmental stuff back there. I just want Jesus, listen to me. Jesus is okay with the Old Testament. That affirms it right here. He goes back to it. Number two, he actually takes Adam and Eve serious. There are now Christians who say Adam and Eve are figurative, God used evolution, and real history doesn't start to around Abraham. All the first 11 chapters of the book are basically the myth of the people that God used to speak parables to them about how he's a creator and all of these things, but he used evolution. There are Christians who actually believe that you can be a Christian and be dumb at the same time. Can I hear an amen? That is dumb. Do not believe that. We teach here why not to believe it, so don't just take our word and think I'm trying to put you down. If you believe that, uh, I still love you. I, I love people who are dumb all the time. Can I just get an amen? How many of you love people when they act dumb and you know say silly things? But this right here clarifies there's a real Adam and Eve because he doesn't say back from the goo through the zoo to you. No, he goes, that at the beginning. So even there's a third option, by the way. I'm a six-day creationist. There's Christian evolutionists. And then there's people who believe in day-age theory. And that is each day 
that the Bible says there was a day is actually a period of time, and that goes on for millions and billions of years until the last day of creation where he creates man, and then from there on out, everything is legit. But, but the first uh, uh, five days are all figurative of long periods of time, okay? Let me just give you three websites to check out. You can make up your own decision. You can ask our people about it. If you want to understand the perspective that I believe, Answers in Genesis, they're the people that have the ark in Kentucky. They made a life-size ark. Answers in Genesis. Reasons to believe are the day-age folks, and BioLogos are the Christian evolutionists. The guy who heads that up is Francis Collin. He founded it. He was in charge of the genome code, so pretty smart guy, but I, I still believe pretty smart people can be dumb on certain things. Okay, that can be wrong. Um, here's how I know Jesus didn't believe in any of those other things, but real uh, six days of creation. Because he goes at the beginning, at the beginning. If if even the day age folks are right, and billions of years have happened before Adam is created, is that at the beginning? No, because billions of years have happened. Is evolution true if at the beginning the first human beings are there? No, because evolution says the first human beings came billions of years later. The only difference between the Christian evolutionists and the day-age theorists is that the evolutionists just believe God just started the thing like throwing a bowling ball down the bowling alley and everything just happened on its own, where the day-age folks believe God was a part of those, those processes in those days. But it was still a long period of time. My point is this. Number one, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. Number two, he affirms the validity of a real Adam and Eve. Why is that important? Because then he affirms sexuality as one man and one woman. That's why it matters. Do you understand? That's why it matters. My Jesus believed in Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. We say those jokes around here. Sorry if that bothers you. We do believe the intention of the creator in creation was male and female. I can't say it any more clear than that, but I'll give one example. My wife is the, is the nut to my bolt. Do you all under, understand it? She's the nut to my bolt, everybody. Okay? She's the socket in which I plug. I plug into, okay? Okay? <laughs> That's as, that's as real as I can keep it for you without drawing pictures up here. Yeah, some people getting excited. It's good to be married because they join together and become one flesh. How many of y'all have been married, are married and have become one flesh before? How many know that's a beautiful thing? And the Bible says what he joins together, let no one tear apart. So we could add the fourth thing there is that sex is beautiful when it's done God's way. Number one, Jesus affirms the Bible. Number two, a real Adam and Eve. Number three, sexuality is between one man and one woman. And number four, sex feels good and it's fun. And it's for procreation, which is not mentioned here, but we know it's a part of the command, be fruitful and multiply. So Jesus says, that's how we're supposed to be. That's the ideal. That's what it's about. That's how you guys should be living. Verse 7, they go, then why in the Old Testament, go to verse 7, please, he quotes to them, the, uh, the Pharisee goes, why did we get certificates of divorce? That's from Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 14. They're, they're basically saying that why were we in one of the 613 laws given to Moses, why were we able to divorce? 
And now God, through Jesus, his son, explains to us that there were things in the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, that were there simply because our hearts were hard. And I say we as if I was there because you know we would do no different. Humanity has been humanity. Nothing has changed. It's different faces in different places, but everything remains the same. And so he explains to them there was a get out of marriage card if you didn't want to do it. That was there for you, but that was never God's intention. And then now here's the part that he adds his intention in marriage is for unity. And if you divorce and did it wrong, he says you're committing the sin of adultery. Now, this is where it gets a little bit complicated because people now ask me the question. They say, well, what if... I didn't have a biblical reason to divorce, which he said before was for someone committing adultery with you. I just, com- I just had a divorce on my own for any and every reason, whatever it is, and now I have remarried. Am I still an adulterer? Those are questions we're going to get to in just a moment. But this is his mindset, and we got to get into the mindset of Jesus, that you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to divorce. Please stay on that passage. You're not supposed to divorce... But if you do get a divorce, your only legitimate reason should be for sexual immorality. Now, as we've talked here before, Paul and the apostles always take Jesus' teachings further than he does in the gospel. They had many, many years in the Holy Spirit to expand his teachings, so they write about it more in depth. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but before we do, I want you just to understand that there's hope for you even if you've had an unbiblical divorce. But let's learn more about it, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 15. Now, for the same purpose of time and for you to hear Paul's answer, I'm just going to read verses 12 through 15 uninterrupted, but you can go through the rest of the passage yourself. It's really verses 1 all the way through 15. But here's the part where he's going to add something different than what Jesus had said. And remember, we read the Bible as surround sound, not not as contradictory. So he's complimenting, not contradicting. Verse 12, to the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So you're not supposed to divorce just over people not being Christians. Even though as a Christian, you should not marry an unchristian. But if you find yourself in that situation, you can't just say, I'm going to get a divorce because they're a non-Christian. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So basically, God blesses your family when you stay together like that. Now, verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves... Let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you not know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So now you notice there is a second clause in which a person can get a divorce. Jesus' first one was adultery. If someone commits adultery, you can rightfully get a divorce. If you don't get a divorce the right way and you remarry, you're committing adultery. Let's go back to the Matthew passage, please. And then now Jesus, uh, Paul rather, has said, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they leave you, you can now remarry. So there's two reasons. 
to divorce. One for adultery, one for somebody leaving you because of the Christian faith. Now, let's go to the, some of the things that I want you to see at the bottom here of our notes. They're on our app as well. Two biblical grounds for divorce, adultery, abandonment. Did everybody see that in the passages? It's got to be like a Bible study today, so I need your help. We see the two uh, reasons for divorce. Someone has cheated on you. You are free to remarry. Now, can cheating, because the word there actually is porania, it's sexual immorality, can it include an addiction to pornography? Yes. They are sexually doing deviant things, ruining the marriage and cutting you out. So that can be included. Now, remember, when you have a biblical reason for divorce, that doesn't mean you have to divorce. But this is a biblical reason, sexual activity outside the marriage. And how many know somebody having sex with themselves, uh, you know, and looking at pornography is sex outside of the marriage? You weren't designed to do that, okay? So adultery. The second one is abandonment. Now, notice abandonment is attached to you being a Christian and the other person not being a Christian. And so right here, we kind of start splitting hairs as what is a Christian and what is not a Christian. So you may say, I've been separated from my husband or wife because they left me, but they still go to church and claim to be a Christian. Well, if we start to give them the evaluation of what a Christian is, they're probably not a Christian anymore, and they're not doing the right thing. But let's just say technically they are still a Christian, and you guys are just having problems. You're supposed to work that out even though you've been separated, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Abandonment to me is definitely under the category of a non-Christian leaving a Christian and abuse. Because if a person is beating you, abusing you, abusing your children, they have abandoned their place as your protector. You're basically living as an en- with an enemy in your house. Do you get that? Like they've abandoned their post. Like they are a double agent. So you have permission, if someone has abused you or your kids, to get a divorce because that, in my opinion, falls under abandonment of abandoning the place of a husband or wife. You're not a husband or wife because if somebody on the street wanted to beat me up or beat my kids up, I'm not bringing them into my house. Just because you're still in my house wanting to sleep here, and a lot of times, you know, it's the men, they're bums, they don't want to leave, and they want to use control. That doesn't mean you haven't abandoned the cause of marriage here. And so we, we would be good to read those kinds of things in, into here. And I would just say this, if someone wanted to be very technical, because I've argued with this with some pastors, and they go, well, technically, they haven't been uh, given a, a, a abuse, hasn't given them a reason for divorce. But I would say, do they have a reason to separate? Yes. And then at least that separation, they can be free from that. And then at that point, normally the separated person cheats on them and they have that, that, that biblical reason. But I don't need them to cheat to have the reason. I put that under abandonment as a pastoral counsel. Can I hear an amen for that? We defend the victims here. Now, understand that there are also things that you can do in a bad marriage that are not divorce. Separation. Let's talk about the two, two reasons to separate. Two reasons to separate, according to the Bible, is not something you're trying to divorce over, but you're saying, I cannot live with you, I need space, and I am actually hoping to be reconciled to you. That would be number one, if you are in a spiritually destructive marriage. That means 
It, is, it doesn't matter whether they claim to be a Christian or not. It is just spiritually affecting you. You're not close to God. You're not growing in your faith. You're arguing all the time. It's, it's depressing you. You're not, you don't have permission to go get a divorce, but you do have permission to go separate. And that's where the Bible talks about you don't have to give sex for a time, and that's to seek the Lord. And that's where it's during fasting and things like that. So if you're going to separate, it's not so you can date other people and play it off like that. It's so that you literally, both of you, can have time to seek the Lord. And, that, and I always say this to people who think their spouse is cheating on them. I say, during that separation, you'll know for sure or not. You know, because if you're, if you're away from them for a couple months and they're not getting any from you, you're going to see now what they're going to do on their own. So separation can be used to bring out the other situations and or it can be a place for both of you to seek God. Let's say you're in a marriage and it's continually destructive in your spiritual life. You're fighting all the time. You're not resolving the issues. You, maybe you've tried counseling. It's not working. You might have to go back to your parents' house, one of you keep the house, and just say, we need to pray through this for the next couple of months. And like I said, if they then start cheating on you, then that's been the problem the whole time. Whether they were doing it before or not, it was always in their heart because there shouldn't be a reason why two Christians can't work through a situation. And like I said, even if you're married to an unbeliever, there's no reason why you can't work through it if they're committed to the principles that they'll learn. So separation can be good. And then lastly, you can separate for emotional reasons, which is definitely tied into spiritual reasons. But I just wanted to separate it so that you would understand that there are some things that bring depression and bring those kind of emotional states of affairs, and you don't have to stick around, okay? Okay. You can't give up on your marriage, but if you're telling me, like, pastor, like, I am depressed. We fight every day. Like, I'm thinking about taking my life. Do I have to stay? No. If, if you need to go be with your parents, fine. Just understand that you don't have permission to go wild out now. Does everybody get that? Because I know sometimes people are like, well, then I'm free to go do whatever I want. No. If we as a church see in the Bible reason for separation, we're not saying reason now for divorce. You don't have the biblical ground for that. And we're not saying reason to give up on it. What we're saying is, is that sometimes when two people are living together and they don't know how to help each other and all they're doing is hurting each other, there could be an opportunity to separate, to pray and seek God. Can I hear an amen to that? All right, let's go to the questions now because I'm sure you have a bunch of them. And voila, there they are. Hopefully I can answer some of your questions now. The big one that's in our culture is, will God ever allow us to change the standard for marriage and include LGBT modifications? Everybody say no. No. And the reason is, is because we go back to the beginning. God created the male and female. That's how it's meant to be done. And the moment we answer that question, what's the next question a lot of people ask us? Well, then why did God allow polygamy in the Old Testament then? That's not one man and one woman. And we go back to what we just read. The hard heart thing applies to a lot of things. Remember I talked about that being in the law because their hearts were hard, the no-fault divorce? Well, polygamy was allowed because their hearts were hard. It was never God's intention for Abraham to have an affair with Hagar. It was never God's intention for David to have multiple wives. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Solomon and his many wives led him away from the Lord. 
And then you read about all the jealousy between the wives in the, in the lives of the patriarchs. There is never, not even one positive example of polygamy in the Bible. So it was allowed because of hard hearts. But when Jesus came on the scene and he reiterates the first intention, the first intention, now that's what we go with. And for the rest of the New Testament, it's not allowed anymore. Sometimes people on top of this ask the, you know, like the, the real splitting hairs question. Well, what if we're, we're ministering to tribes somewhere and like they have multiple wives? What do we do now, you know? Well, like you let me know when you're that missionary and we'll help you out, okay? But, but to just, just to, you know, help scratch that little itch, we tell them to divorce all but one and to care for the others as a community, as, as people that would love and help them. But they don't abandon their wives, but they marry just one, and they continue now with that marital relationship, not having relationships with the other eight wives, etc. And then to care for the wives and the children, that's how we give that answer. We actually have this on our website as well, if you look up our stances. Let's go to the next one. Here is a big one that comes up a lot. That's why it's a lot of writing here. And I would encourage you, if you have more questions about this, talk to your life group leader. Talk to your one-on-one or uh, let us help you see this in the scripture. If someone initiated an unbiblical divorce and remarried, are they in the continuing sin of adultery even if they repent for the unbiblical divorce? Does everybody get the question? I had mentioned it earlier. So let's say someone here goes, man, I'm going to get a divorce. I don't care what Pastor Joe said. We just don't get along, and I'm just calling it quits. They then fall in They get a divorce. They then fall in love with someone else. They get remarried. Because they have had an unbiblical divorce, and because God said when they do that, they are in adultery, do they, A, get to ask for forgiveness of adultery for the one time, and then they get to continue in that marriage and be a Christian and go to heaven, etc.? Or are they in adultery as long as they are in the marriage? Let's go back to Matthew. You'll see why people ask this question. Please scroll up, sir. Go back to Matthew to the beginning there, and you'll see why people ask this question. They ask this question because of what Jesus said right around verse 6. It says here, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So you're not supposed to separate from the original spouse if they're still alive and they haven't committed adultery or abandoned you, right? Now go to verse 10, please. Uh, verse 9, rather. Now look at what he says. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. So you separate. You're doing what you weren't supposed to and marries another commits adultery. And so whole entire denominations have split and fought over this. And let's go to my answer, please. If you are still bonded with this person and the Bond has not been broken according to God because remember, you're initiating divorce where God says, I have not allowed divorce. Does the bond with that spouse still remain? So even though you have a marriage certificate to the new spouse, and even though it's legit in the world's eyes, God does not validate that marriage certificate. He believes and knows that you're still bound to that first wife and everything you're doing with this woman is no different than an adulterous affair. How many of you are nervous right now? 
How many of you are skipping ahead reading my answer? What did he say? Am I still in adultery right now? What's going on? Well, let's, re- let's go to the notes, sir. Let me read it, please. I don't think so. I don't think you're in continuing adultery. Let me tell you why. The Bible does not teach that after a person repented of an unbiblical divorce and has a remarriage, that the new unauthorized marriage is a continuing sin. They don't think in that way. That's like an American way, a Western way of trying to twist around the argument. They understood they could be divorced and remarried. The question was, if they do it the wrong way, are they sinning and then need to bring sacrifice on behalf of their sins, or are they right with God? And so what we clearly look at here, as you scroll uh, continuing down there, is that they are not in a continuing sin. They just committed the sin of an unlawful divorce and adultery. And how many are glad that you can be forgiven of sins? So divorce... And remarriage, according to how I see the scripture, and I do put that preface there, is not a continuing sin of adultery. Divorce, an unbiblical divorce, and a remarriage is not an unauthorized remarriage. I do believe it's a, it's a marriage that God will now honor, but the way you did it was adulterous. So you must repent for adultery. Now, there is a slight little bit of gray area between an unbiblical divorce and an unbiblical remarriage, that adultery, which is that time, what do you do if you're caught in the middle? And some of you may be there right now. You might know I'm already divorced or I'm separated and I don't have biblical reasons. What should I do? I'm a Christian now. You should do everything you can to be restored back to your wife or even if it is now your ex-wife. But that does not mean you have to marry them because they have to make a choice to do the same thing with you if you're already divorced or to let you back in. There needs to be a decision made. And if they are now a non-Christian, you're commanded not to marry a non-Christian. And so you have to be careful of what you're going to do now, and it may seem to be impossible, but I would say start by repenting for what you did wrong, which was an unbiblical divorce, or now you're separated for unbiblical reasons. Once again, it doesn't have anything to do with spiritual or emotional. You just didn't like the person anymore. You just wanted to move on. Maybe you started flirting, whatever. You need to stop and repent And this is what I always share with people during this time. God is faithful to restore things that maybe you don't even think can happen. So don't give up on a restoration, even if the person, you and that person are divorced. Do your best to go back and speak to them. Let them know you've been coming to church. Invite them to come to church with you. Start to date them. See if there is that relationship uh, foundation still there. And don't just take the I get to get forgiveness of this and move on card. Do the hard work because, scroll all the way to the top, please, the divorce stats are not in your favor for your second marriage. 
First marriage divorce is around 41%. Most people say it's 50. It's a little bit lower than that. But what is the second marriage rate of divorce? 60%. You're doing worse now, not better. What is the third marriage? 73%, even further down the pit. You don't want to go down that road. Because remember, you don't fix yourself by changing the people you're around. You fix yourself by being different here. You don't need another wife, another husband, another wife, another husband. You've already done that in the dating game. You already know where that leads. Marriage is no different. It won't fix you. Let God fix you now. Let God heal you now. So let's go to the end of the notes, please. Hopefully all of those questions have helped you out. And as you come to the end here, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 with me, please, as the band comes. How many got something good out of it today? Did I do okay? <laughs> I don't get nervous a lot, man, I'll tell you. But this was a tough one because I had to go through so much, and I wanted it to make sense. I didn't want you to get confused. I do want to make it a little bit more clear, but let's read this passage because I think it's going to bless us. Matter of fact, I know it will because every... Everything that we learn here out the scriptures is for our benefit. When we look at Ephesians chapter 5, and we see starting, say, in verse 21, the commands of marriage, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, please. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way. Everybody say, in the same way. Another great place to highlight. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they, they fed and cared for their body just as Christ as a church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds familiar? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become what? One flesh. Keep going. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Going back to the closing statement on the notes, marriage is meant to reflect and represent our union with Jesus. We are Jesus' bride. He is our husband. He takes us in. He brings us into who he is. He washes us. He cleanses us. He transforms us. He provides for us. And we are to respect and to honor and to love him. When we do that in marriage, husbands representing Christ and wives representing the church, we show the world what heaven looks like. There is no beauty, more beautiful picture in all of the earth that represents what heaven is like 
than a man in love with a woman and a woman in love with a man in blessed marriage. And then from there comes the family. That is the purpose of marriage and family, to be like God. So let's just, in our hearts, go through it quickly and think about these things. Number one, have we ever done it wrong? If we have today, repent and do it right. If you can still do the acts of reconciliation, do it. Involve us. Let us help you. Do not sell yourself short. Do not just say, well, I'll be forgiven of the sin anyway. I'll just, you know, go on. Remember the divorce stats. It doesn't work good like that. And then for those of us here who are in marriages, and maybe it's tough right now, and you're thinking, man, this is really serious. That's a good thing to have on your mind right now, the fear of the Lord, because you shouldn't just drop this marriage because you don't like how it's going. If it's not a biblical reason for divorce, then stick with the marriage right now, irregardless of your feelings. And if your feelings are really getting damaged and your spirit is getting damaged, separate for a time of praying and seeking the Lord. Involve other spiritual leaders and believe God to restore that marriage. Don't give up. Let what God joined together remain together. And then lastly, those of us here who would say not to brag or to boast, but we have awesome marriages. We are blessed in our marriages. Don't look at your marriage as an idol. Look at your marriage as a blessing from God so you continually invite God into your times together. You invite God into your life together and you center that marriage around him because you don't know what troubles may be ahead. You may be facing something ahead that you're not prepared for now. And if you don't have God in the midst of it, it could shake the very foundation of that marriage. So build your marriage on the rock of Jesus Christ. Keep him as the center. And I do believe that no matter what you face, it will only be death that separates you. Amen. How many believe that today, that God's a good God? Amen. Let's stand up. He can keep us. Till death do us part. If you got your honey next to you, squeeze them. Altar workers, would you come, please? Tell them you love them. We'll dismiss here in prayer. As we get ready for the second service, don't be in a hurry, though. Make sure you come up and receive prayer. If you don't know Jesus today, someone here would love to introduce you to Jesus. If you're going through any kind of hardship in your life and are seeking counsel, come to them as well. And especially if you're going through a marriage thing or you've come from a hurt marriage background, just anything relationally, don't leave out if you're without prayer. Father, we thank you that today you gave us your word on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And God, it comes with a lot of depth so I pray that we'll continue to study this out, go back over the message, read those scriptures. But Lord, most importantly, I pray that you will soften our hearts, that our hearts will not be hard like those people that use divorce to just get out of marriage for any and every reason. May we be who you called us to be, great husbands and great wives. 
And Lord, even in prayer, a part that I forgot about, there's a call maybe for some to remain single for a season, with a reason, or for an entire life. Let those who are single, like eunuchs now, let them use this singleness, not just to save up more money to make more moves, but to be single-minded towards you. Let them not feel like less thans. Let them know that they belong in the body of Christ as well. In the name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. Can we bless the Lord one more time? Come on, somebody say amen.